Okay, I think we're pretty close. If we could gather in and grab a seat, that would be great. For anyone who may not know who I am, I'm Tim Shorey. I'm one of the pastors here at Wisdom Hope, and I do have the chance. I count it a privilege to share some teaching with you this evening. You're going to have a panel discussion in a little bit, and then some group conversation, I believe. And my task is to give you some things to talk about in that discussion and in those uh, conversations. I like the title for uh, the evening made for this, Womanhood by Design. There is, just in that title alone, a sense of purpose, a sense of the, even the wonder of life and gender and womanhood. And this is something that is by design. There are those who are made to be women. There are those who are made to be men. And the two together are meant by God to produce something significant, something wonderful. Let me, let me pray that God would help us this evening. Father, would you please guide us through the truths, through the concepts that you have for us. Teach us, if you would, by your spirit, O oh Lord, and then bind our hearts together in unity and love and joy and in the sense of the wonder of it all. Uh, that we might live lives as men, as women, that are to your glory and for each other's good. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not sure this is a uh, perfect illustration, but I'm going to use it anyways. I'm thinking of the recent blockbuster movie, Black Panther, and the land of Wakanda. And I want to suggest that among the many things that I enjoyed in that movie, one thing I enjoyed, one thing that made me reflect, was the role of the women in the movie. While the leader of the land was a man, the women were not passive. The women were not wallflowers. The women were not weak. The women were not inept. A little bit like, or similar to, a better way of putting it, some of the women characters in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And, and the combination of wisdom and discernment and strength and courage as women and men side by side um, fought off evil and stood for good. There's something in that that I think is a, a metaphor for us, something wonderful there. I'm not sure it's necessarily a model in the sense that every woman ought to go out and be a warrior, not in a literal sense, but a metaphor for life is war. And the things that matter most are always a battle. And the things that we care about the most, the things that God cares about the most, he often in scripture terms in, or puts in terms of warfare. And so I think it is a metaphor that fits us. Though I would 
caution just for the sake of the sanity of my sisters in the Lord. Um, Hollywood is pushing these days a, a view of womanhood that is this omnicompetent woman who, on top of being able to do everything incredibly well, also has incredible martial arts skills. <laughs> and is able to beat down into oblivion every goon that comes down the, the pipe, even 10 of them at a time. And it's setting up this image of womanhood that frankly is unattainable. Yeah. And the, the end result of that can be a, a constant, ever-deepening, ever-growing sense of inferiority, or I am less than what I'm supposed to be. And sisters in the Lord, that is not where God wants you to be. That is not how God wants you to see yourself or to see life. But there is a metaphor here in the Wakanda women or in the women of the Lord of the Rings. There is a metaphor of, of women standing alongside of men in the battle in the battle for our own salvation, in the battle for our families' salvation, in the battle for our churches' unity and mission, in the battle for our neighbors' and our neighborhoods' survival, in the battle for the world's future. We are in it together. And we must stand side by side and, and shoulder to shoulder in this battle for the glory of God. I think we're going to see that that's a biblical metaphor by the time we're done here this evening. A little bit about why we're here. Risen, Risen Hope is now two and a half years old. And uh, we are at the place where we are exploring um, critical aspects of church life such as discipleship. What does it look like to go on growing in Jesus, go on growing in Christ. And, and what does it look like for women to be discipled in the Lord and men to be discipled in the Lord? And, and in the course of thinking through this, we're thinking about men's ministry. What is that to look like? What is women's ministry to look like? And by women's ministry, we mean both ministry to women and ministry by women in the church. As we're thinking through this and contemplating this and, and um, praying through this, one of the things we've come to realize is that it would probably be very good for us to, to, to lay some common ground found from the Word of God and then take our stand together on that common ground because when it comes to these type of issues, there are all kinds of different perspectives and applications. But if we can find the common ground, if we can find that place where we agree about what the Word of God says, we can then build on that in a united kind of way that will bring glory to God and will bring great good to one another. And so tonight's an effort to, to establish the common ground. This, this is where we stand. As, as a church. This is what we believe the Bible teaches about the roles of men and women 
and with particular focus on women this evening. Here's, here's what I want us to see, that there are great freedoms and a few fences when it comes to ministry by women in the church. There are great freedoms and a few fences when it comes to ministry by women in the church. I want to start with the freedoms and then mention the fences and then at the end we're going to try to wrap it all up in a in a definition and understanding of what we like to call complementarianism where the roles of men and women complement. They, they complete each other and, and produce a whole, W-H-O-L-E, a whole, a completion one with another. So let's, let's start with the freedoms. You, you might be surprised if you, if you listen to how, well, I was going to say how Christians are caricatured, but I'm afraid this isn't always a caricature. Too often it's the truth in terms of how Christians behave. Uh, but if you listen to how Christians are caricatured in the world, uh, you would get the impression that the Bible, uh, when it talks about women, basically talks about shackles and chains and just binds them and, and restricts them and doesn't let them do anything. But as you study the Bible, you realize that, no, that's not the case at all. In fact, there is a beautifully expansive view of womanhood that we find in God's word. And the freedoms that women have in life and ministry are wonderful. And I want to celebrate them here for a few minutes. And we're not going to take any time, much time on any one of these, but I'm going to try to give you a big picture look at what you see in Scripture when you think about what women are free to do for the glory of God. And the freedoms begin with something that the world nowadays disdains. And, you know, there's, there's a sense in which it, it's, it's almost astonishing and shocking the world's attitude toward motherhood. Uh, there are so many things going on in our culture today that demean motherhood, that denigrate motherhood, that make moms feel inferior to, to others, that make uh, childbirth and child raising and child nurturing uh, seem to be something that are, that are inferior to higher careers or higher goals. And, and we just need to stand against that because that's not what the Bible says. The Bible celebrates motherhood. And what I want to do is I, I want to just, uh, I'm going to read here now. You get it in your, in your handout. There are, there are three or four sections that I'm just going to read because what's that's gonna, what that's going to let me do is say a lot of things real fast. And you're going to have them in front of you so you can read them real fast. And then when you go home, you can read them again and look at all the texts of Scripture that are there uh, to make sure that what I'm saying is faithful to God's Word and not being made up by me. So let me, let me read here and you can follow along. Many women are free to do what no man has ever done, give birth to and nurture precious human life. In this, woman surpasses man in honor, and nothing man can do can match her glory. 
In fact, Paul actually refers to this in 1 Timothy 2, where after saying that women are not to teach men or have authority over men in the church, he writes, yet the woman will be saved through childbearing, that is through child nurturing and raising. Just parenthetically, it's, it's a shocking thing that there are a lot of people who wish that verse wasn't in the Bible. But Paul is saying something here. For those that God calls to motherhood, there is a dignity, there is a value, there is a worth to that. That is, is really beyond words. Beyond words. Paul reminds women that while they may not teach men or have spiritual authority over men, many of them do have the glorious privilege of motherhood, a privilege and glory no man can ever enjoy. But while this is a glory which no man can match, for how few dads there are who ever achieve the place of mom, it is not the only glory or gifting of women. Along with and in addition to it, women may use freely all their gifts, however they can, whatever their circumstances, whether married or moms or single or widowed. Godly and fulfilled womanhood is not a married thing, but an every woman thing. In fact, Paul goes out of his way in 1 Corinthians 7 to teach that in some ways, single women can do more than married women, that singles have opportunity to devote themselves to Christ and his church beyond that of married. But all women may sing and dance and speak wisdom and be filled with the Spirit and exhort and encourage and comfort and help and give and support. They may pray both in private and in corporate gatherings, so long as they do so with humility and modesty. They may prophesy as did Deborah and Anna and the daughters of Philip. They may teach men in private settings and in so doing help spread the gospel with power as Priscilla did Apollos. They may represent a church and be given significant responsibilities that both men and women are to assist in in any way they can as Phoebe did in Rome. They may be co-laborers with apostles in missionary gospel work. They may serve in the temple day and night. They may be deacons in our view or at least deacons wives according to others who serve in diaconal ways. They may build and manage their home with all the managerial skill and expertise that requires. They may teach children. They may be teachers, models, and mentors to other women who don't have a clue how to love and honor their husbands or how to love their children or how to stay pure and self-controlled or how to build a home or how to be kind and hospitable, Titus 2. They may have the time-honored role of passing on to the next generation the glorious deeds, the saving wonders, the holy laws, and the deep things of God, Psalm 78 and Deuteronomy 6. They may submit to the hard will of God in faith and without complaint, and thereby help change the world as Mary did. They may know that their husbands are about to do a great moral evil, and then work behind the scenes to make sure it doesn't happen as the discerning Abigail did and the silent Sapphira should have done. They may rise up when there are no men to lead to do great exploits for God and challenge men to fulfill their calling as Deborah and Jael did in Judges 4 or to stand alongside of men who do the same as Sarah and others did in Hebrews 11. 
They may save a nation by their courageous stand, as Esther did in the book by her name, or save the next generation in defiance of godless leaders like the Hebrew midwives did in Exodus 1. They may counsel spiritual leaders with the word of God and sound wisdom, as the prophetess Huldah did in 2 Kings 22. They may provide financial assistance for the advance of the gospel, as Mary, Susanna, and Joanna did for Jesus in Luke 8. The scriptures celebrate strong women. Not strong women as culturally defined, the kind who assert and fight and demand. Not stubborn and willful women, not arrogant and superior-minded women. Not women who demand the exact same role as men in every single way or demand equal time and equal voice in every single decision or usurp a place of leadership that God forbids. But women whose faith is so strong that they can forbear under wrongs, take great risks for God alongside husband and pastors, be gentle even when tested, let the word of dwell richly within them to humble them and make them holy and happy and wise in Christ. Women willing to leave father and mother and home security and homeland comforts to take the gospel where it's never gone before, to venture into unfriendly an unfriendly world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to travel far and wide, to win disciples to Jesus, to speak truth to power in godly but courageous ways against the world's corrupt systems, to bring biblical correction to other women who are not seeing life and marriage and gender God's way, all the while resisting the world's pressures and definitions of womanhood, choosing to be misunderstood as old school or out of touch or weak or misunderstood, rather then conform to this world's take on gender, sameness, and role interchangeableness. Women of faith, of character, of courage, of singular commitment and devotion and valor and deference and love. I don't know what you think of or who you think of when you hear that. Um, I think of my mom. My mom's got quite a story. She's in heaven now, but she still has quite a story because I'm telling it right now. She used to make us laugh when she spoke about herself in her humble, self-effacing ways. Often she would very mildly and humbly say something like, I'm not a very brave woman. We used to, well, I think we laughed right in her face when she said that. We appreciated her humility, but it was clear to us that she had no idea how courageous her life adventure had been. Let me tell you her story. She was, by most human standards, unremarkable, though she was beautiful. Clothed in gentle beauty, she was almost painfully shy. She grew up in an impoverished New York town. Her family was the poorest family in her community. Her father was an alcoholic who abandoned the family when she was two, forcing my grandmother to work long hours, six or seven days a week, leaving my mom to be raised by her older sister. Mom came to faith in Christ in her mid-teens, and then in her early 20s went away to Bible college where she met dad. And at around 25, with a 12 to 15 month old child on her hip and another on the way, she and dad packed up all their earthly belongings in a station wagon, 
in Massachusetts, drove across the country to San Francisco, boarded a ship, sailed two weeks to Japan through two typhoons, and then spent the next 25 years of their lives bringing the gospel to that spiritually desolate nation. Now you know why we laughed when she said she was a coward. This poor, sometimes painfully shy, not very brave woman was a pioneer missionary and pastor's wife for over 50 years. She played host to thousands of people, became a mother of six, a grandmother of 34, the final caregiver for her Alzheimer-afflicted mother, an unfailing prayer warrior every day of her life, and one of the steadiest and strongest women I have ever known. At 80 years old, 55 years after she boarded the Japan-bound ship, while she was far advanced with the cancer that would lead to her own death, she nursed my dying dad to his death. And the week after dad died, mom hopped in her car, drove to the nearby supermarket to meet with some senior citizens to carry on some evangelism work with them that she and dad had started a few years before. I asked her, as I saw her getting ready to leave the house that morning, are you sure you're ready to do this? And her answer, I want to finish what dad started. She died in faith 11 months later. Not very brave, or one of the strongest women you will ever meet. We do need to be careful how we define strong, don't we? The world has its standard, the world had its definition, but I'd like to suggest to you sisters that God has a definition that we need to work with. It is a definition of inner character and inner strength, of inner faith and inner humility, and a, a spirit that just says, I will do what is right, I will say what is right, I will believe what is right, no matter what the cost. God celebrates women like this. In scripture, a Sarah who believed God, left her homeland, braved the desert, bore a son in her old age, and followed her husband to who knows where. Like the midwives who defied a Pharaoh, like Deborah who inspired an army, like Rahab who harbored the spies, like Ruth left her family and country behind to follow her God and care for her mother-in-law and eventually become great-grandmother to a king. Like Abigail, who despite her husband's moral folly, rescued hundreds. Esther, who delivered all her people from death. Mary, the mother of Jesus, who dared to believe the impossible and face down all the slander. Phoebe, who served many, Priscilla, who helped an itinerant preacher. These are all names, these are all wonderful names of wonderful women who did wonderful things for the glory of God. You can check your text, you can check the scriptures. I want you to, I encourage you, I ask you to, because I think in doing that, your heart will be stirred, your heart will be inspired. The freedoms to serve for the glory of God are massive. They are massive. And I hope that we can see in this, uh, 
as all of you would know, when it comes to gender roles and responsibilities, there's all kinds of controversy, there's all kinds of debates, and usually in the church, the debates center on what women can't do. And what I'm trying to do here, ladies, is change the focus of the conversation. The focus should not be on what women can't do, it should be on what they can do. The focus should not be on the few fences, but on the great freedoms. The, the focus should be on the fact that God has made male and female in Christ to do remarkable things for his glory. And I want to encourage you to have that focus. Now, with that focus and, and having your hearts and minds affected by that focus, these great freedoms, we, we do need to recognize that there are a very few fences that God has put in place when it comes to the role of women in the church. And as, a, as we look at this, and, and I'm going to try to rush through this as quick as I can. As we, as we look at this, I, I, want to, I want to make sure that we start with what I'm calling a word about the word. A word about the scriptures. A word about the word of God. Um, to be honest, there are many times when in conversation about various controversial things, I, I sense that there are those... Who, who don't pay great attention to the Word of God. They're not paying sufficient attention to the Word of God and argue from a lot of other perspectives. But the Bible is the Word of God. This is what we believe, right? It's what we believe. We believe the Scriptures are inspired by God, that this is God's Word to us, that the words that we find in the Bible are the very words of God, and that they alone are to dictate to us and define for us what life is and who we are and how we're to live, and, and we are to bend our knees and bow our heads and hearts before the Word of God. Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. What the Bible says, God says. What the Bible teaches, God teaches. What the Bible commands, we must obey. What the Bible permits, we must permit. What the Bible forbids, we must forbid. If the Bible sets up a few fences, we need to recognize and honor the fences. Because the Bible is the Word of God. A right view of the inspiration and authority of the Bible will lead us, I believe, to recognize that along with the great freedoms, uh, there are a few fences. And so that we can just have a sense of um, what those fences are, I, I want us to, to begin by just considering the fact that when it comes to God's word, it is decidedly, it is emphatically aware that official functional leadership in the home and in the church is to be carried out by men. This is not a passing teaching, occasional teaching in God's word. It is an emphatic teaching in God's word. Uh, and I want to make sure that 
we see that. And, and I want us to be aware that the imperatives about leadership by men and followership of women are so often repeated in the Bible, so often repeated, that up until just very recent time, Christians never questioned it. It's only been in very recent years that this has been disputed because the Bible is clear on it. But I don't want to assume that you know that, so here's going to be another reading section. Okay, there's going to be another, I'm just going to I'll give you kind of this panoramic overview of how the Bible presents male leadership as, as the norm in home and church. And my glasses, I, I need the windshield wipers again. My wife to the rescue here. So, follow along as I, as I read here. This, by the way, is why I have my sermon notes in size 26 font. Because <laughs> the glasses often fail me when I'm up here. The Bible is very gender aware when it comes to official leadership roles in home and church. God chose that the Bible itself be written entirely by men, 42 men, and not one woman. God chose to reveal himself in his love initiating and leading roles as father and as husband. And he created marriage and the role of the husband and father in the home to picture his husband-father heart for us. Adam was made first, a fact that is appealed to more than once in support of male leadership roles in home and church. Eve was made to help Adam and was made for him, not the reverse. Adam names Eve a role in scripture clearly implying authority and leadership. Adam, as the first representative head of the human race, committed the sin that condemned us, not Eve. Also, the human race is called man in Genesis 5, which reflects a biblical impulse to see men as the representative head of their families and others. In the Bible, leadership roles are almost always given by God or his son to men from Adam to Abraham to Moses to Joshua to the heads of households and chiefs of tribes and kings of Israel to the 12 apostles to husbands to church elders, even to the thrones of the apostles in heaven. In addition, all the major New Testament texts on marriage either assume or command the husband's headship leadership role with matching calls for a woman's submission. Furthermore, the Bible is explicit more than once regarding a woman's need to be silent in certain moments when a church, local church is gathered, that is, when teaching to men and or when public assessment of prophecy is involved, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 14. And finally, the Bible very clearly forbids church eldership authority and pastoral oversight roles for women in the household of God, 1 Timothy 2. And three, it's a rapid fire, big picture. And again, I encourage you to check out the text and search God's word. I mean, let me go back and just focus on a couple of the points that I kind of swept over in that, that overview there. Uh, the first one is the, is the fact that Adam was, was made first. And in the scriptures, that actually is appealed to more than once in support of male leadership in the home and in the 
church. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, argues for men being in leadership roles by reminding us of the order of creation. He says men should lead, quote, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Notice, it's the order of creation that Paul argues from that should lead man to lead. Or 1 Timothy 2 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man in the household of God or in the church. For Adam was made first, then Eve. What, what is Paul saying here? Paul, Paul is saying that the order of creation was designed by God to say something to us. That man being made first was meant by God to indicate that man was to lead. Man was to have the leadership role. And what this means is that male leadership in the home and churches is not a cultural practice that comes from an unenlightened time. But is actually a God-ordained order of things that goes all the way back to creation, all the way back to the dawn of time. For whatever reasons, believe me, I know it's not because men are smarter or more skilled or have a better skill set. I know that. But for whatever reasons, the sovereign creator God made the man first and then said, that means the man is to lead. And so, connected to that, we see that Eve was made to help Adam. Remember Genesis 2, right? God made man, we're going to come back to this in a minute, but God made man and said, oh, not good for man to be alone. And that's not a statement about man's loneliness. That's a statement about man's inadequacy. How do I know that? Because the next statement is, I will make him a helper. Doesn't say I will make him a companion. Doesn't say I will make him a lover. Doesn't say I will make him, I will make him a helper suitable for him, that fits him, that complements him. Eve was made to help Adam. And if you think that term is uh, somehow insulting or, or implies inferiority, keep in mind that God is our helper. That the scriptures use the very same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis 2 for God. God is our helper. So whatever helper is, it's not inferior. Whatever helper is, is not smaller skill set. Whatever helper is, is not some kind of subservient role. God is not subservient to anyone. God has, his skill set is not smaller than anybody's. And yet he is our helper. 
And that very same word is the word that is used for Eve. He is the, she is the helper suitable for Adam. And so Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, man was not created for woman, but woman was made for man. That verse has been so taken out of context, especially by men. The application so many men have made through the generations is that means you're here for me. That means you're here to do my will. That means you're here to serve my pleasure. That means you're here to get my slippers. That means you're here to do whatever I want you to do. I'm the king of the roost. You, you just serve me. That's not what it's about. What it's about is God made Adam, we'll see this again in a minute, but God made Adam to rule the world. Adam was inadequate for the task, so God created this amazingly strong, competent helper, put her alongside of Adam and said, now, the two of you get it done. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. We should notice too, as I said in passing, and I have to say this in passing, but it's important to say. In the New Testament, we read these words, in Adam all die. By one man's disobedience, Adams, we all perished. Have you ever thought about that? Who sinned first, Adam or Eve? Eve sinned first. And yet, her sin did not bring death on the human race. It was Adam's sin that brought death to the human race. Why? Because God made Adam as the head to represent the human race. He made Adam accountable not just for himself, but for his wife and for all that would follow. Sometimes when I hear people craving men, women, craving leadership roles. I want to say, are you out of your mind? <laughs> you have no idea what you're craving. Women who want to be the head of their home, do you know what that means? You the head of the home, according to scripture, is accountable, is responsible, answers to God in a way that the other members of the household do not. On judgment day, when my family stands before God, God is not going to call Galene up to the head of the line and say, hey, Galene, what what was up with the family. If there are sins and if there are failures and if there are sorrows to the degree that they are caused by our failure, I will answer for that. Adam did. 
so does every man. I'm here to tell you that there are many times in my life where I wish I could dig a hole, climb in, bury myself, and let somebody else do it. But what the scriptures are saying to us in the fact that in Adam all died, that he was accountable for others, is that he as the man is appointed to that role. We could go on and we could talk about headship and submission and let me, let me just, there are, there are many texts that talk about this, but let me, let me just give you definitions here real quick. And these, I think, are in your notes. Um, the headship of the man is his leading role in the home and in a different way in the church in which he is responsible to initiate, facilitate, and delegate in ways that will maximize the well-being of the home and the advance of God's kingdom on earth. That's what I think the Bible teaches about headship. And then submission is a faith-filled willingness to relinquish and release official leadership roles in home and church in order to encourage and align behind the initiative of leading men in home and church, men who will give an account to God. Submission is not slavishness. Submission is not subservience. It's not blind obedience. It's not passive wallflower status. Submission is a faith-filled willingness to relinquish official leadership roles and to align behind and with the initiative of leading men in the home and in the church uh, for the glory of God, for the well-being of the home and of the church. Now I know red flags. You know, if I if I could actually see into your brains right now, I would see thoughts like, ah. yeah. "What are you talking about? Yeah. Do you know my man?" Do you know my man? Do, do you understand what you're asking? Please, sisters, I'm not asking. It is so important. That we, this is in God's word. This, this is me talking here. But it's hard. I, I, there, there are limits to this, dear ones. Um, this does not mean submission when a husband wants you to sin or when a man has been unfaithful. This does not mean submission when you or your children's lives are at risk due to verbal or physical abuse. This does not, this, this does not mean a kind of mindless silence and servitude. Can I, can I help you here in a couple of ways? One, to remind you of an amazing truth, that the eternal Son of God was submissive. The eternal Son of God, first of all, submitted to the Father. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says that, yes, the head of the wife is the husband, the head of the husband is Christ, and the head of Christ is God, that God the Father 
was the, in a sense, the leader within the Trinity, and the Son submitted to that. And that they're, they're equally God. They're both God. They, they have the same skill set. They have the same intelligence. They have the same omnicompetence. And yet for the outworking of our salvation, the Son was willing to submit to the Father's leadership. He was willing to relinquish a leadership role to the Father so that our salvation could be accomplished. That's amazing. It also means submission doesn't mean inferiority, right? The Son is not inferior to the Father. But it gets even crazier than that. In Luke chapter 2, just after Jesus was born, and he's this young child, it says he went home to Nazareth with his mother and father, and he was submissive to them. Same Greek word as in all the text about marriage. He was submissive to Mary and Joseph. Now think about that. He was their creator. He was their maker. All-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, all-competent. And yet, for the living out of the plan of God, he was willing to relinquish leadership role to his mom and dad who were vastly his inferiors. But you see, submission isn't about superior inferior. Submission isn't about better, worse. It's not about anything other than a faith-filled willingness to relinquish a leadership role to somebody else that's appointed by God. And the reality is that all of us have to do this at some point or another in life. I'm not saying it's equally easy. Don't, don't mishear me. Um, but all of us have to submit to government. We all have to submit to rulers and presidents, and even though we may not like them or we may disagree with them or we may have issues with them, but we're still to submit, we're to relinquish leadership roles to them in faith that God has us, in faith that we belong to him and will be kept safe by him. A woman's submission then is a faith-filled willingness to relinquish official leadership roles to leading men in home and in church. So much more could be said about this. I hope there's enough there to encourage you. I hope there's enough there to keep you from going to a bad place in terms of negative thoughts about this. I hope there's enough there to inspire some sense of hope that this, this may after all be okay. Um, and to inspire, inspire you to go after it in faith. Let me... Let me Say one more thing about this. Um, let's go back to Genesis two and three. For Genesis chapter one, it um, God says after He's made everything else, He says, "Let us make man in our image." And then it says, 
and God made it man in his image. Male and female made he them in the image of God. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. So what does that mean? Have dominion over the earth. Rule the world. Rule the world. God made humans to rule the world. For his glory, as an expression of his kingdom, but he made us to rule the world. But he made us male and female. So, chapter 2 tells us how this played out. God made Adam first. God put Adam in the garden. And God said to Adam, okay, I want you to tend and care for the garden. You remember this, right? And, and uh, Adam began to go about the business of tending and caring for the garden. And within, it, this, the text doesn't say how long it took, but it almost, you almost had the feeling like within 10 minutes, God looked at the situation and said, no, nah, he's not getting it done. He's <laughs> <laughs> not getting it done. It's not good for the man to be alone. Let, let me make him a strong helper who will be at his side so that together they can get it done. This is where the Wakanda women metaphor, I think, works so well. You see, we as, we as human beings are made to have dominion. That doesn't mean ruin the world, doesn't mean destroy the world, doesn't mean you know, that we can just wreck the world with pollution and all the rest. No, we are made to tend it and care for it and to rule it for the glory of God. And back in Genesis 1 and 2, that was all good because the world was paradise. I mean, it was, it was great. But Genesis 3 happened, right? And in Genesis 3, they sinned, and with the sin came a curse. And with the curse, everything suddenly got hard. Death started happening. Thorns started growing. Childbirth started hurting. It was, it was, it got nasty. It got hard. But the call to rule the world still exists. And in the New Testament, that we see that this is being carried out through the kingdom of God, that, that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ, that King Jesus that we've been hearing about on Sundays in our Matthew series, King Jesus has come, the kingdom has come, God is building his church, God is advancing his kingdom, God is spreading the gospel over the, the, the surface of the earth and it's going to reach every nation and tribe. We are still in kingdom work and we still need to do it together. Man cannot do it alone. Woman cannot do it alone. We must do it together. We must be side by side. We must be shoulder to shoulder. We, we must be in this together. We must be for each other. We must be with each other. We must strengthen each other. We must empower each other. The scriptures say, yes, the man is to be in the lead, but it's not a leadership of dominance. It's a leadership of servanthood. It's a leadership of self-sacrifice. It's a leadership of surrender. It's a leadership where he lays his life down for her and for others, and she's at his side. That's what it's about. And maybe if we could aim for something like that, we could come to that place where we really do realize we, we were made for this. This is womanhood and 
manhood by design. When this happens and we complement rather than compete, it turns out more beautiful. <laughs> it turns out more wonderful. It turns out more glorious. It turns out more magnificent. And so, all that said, let me just say this. And I'm ready to close. Although there's hours more worth of stuff to say. Tremendous freedoms. But God has, for reasons known only to him, reasons that have nothing to do with superiority in the man, God has said that he wants in the home and in the church men to lead. And then in order to ensure that that role, that order of things stays intact, God has set up just three fences that I know of in scripture. Fence number one, 1 Timothy 2, a woman is not to teach a man in the church. Doesn't mean she can't teach women, it doesn't mean she can't teach a man like Priscilla did with Apollos uh, in a more private setting, but in the public gathering of the church, Women are not to teach, and you have to understand teaching in 1 Timothy is talking about the authoritative declaration of the Word of God. It's talking about opening the Bible and saying, this is what God says, this is how you need to, what you need to believe, and this is how you need to live. That kind of teaching, 1 Timothy 2 says, uh, a woman can't do when men are present. And 1 Timothy 2, another fence is, that women are not to have spiritual authority over men. They are not to be elders or, or pastors ordained leaders within the church. And then there's a kind of a strange little fence that is put up in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where um, Paul is talking about spiritual gifts and, and he just has this little section where uh, where if, if there's somebody on a Sunday who shares a prophetic word, it's to be tested and examined and questioned. And Paul says that the women are not to be involved in that. They can, they can test and examine it at home, he says. They can ask their husbands at home. But in the public setting, God says that that's not to be done. So you have these three fences. Can't teach men in the church, can't have spiritual authority over men in the church, and can't publicly question and critique prophetic words in the church. But to my knowledge, that's it. To my knowledge, everything else is freedom. Everything else is freedom. Everything else is possible. Sisters, we want, with God's help, to so focus on the freedoms that we don't get bogged down and we don't get frustrated and we don't get divided over the few fences. We, we believe that if we approach it as the Bible seems to approach it, em emphasizing the freedoms 
If we do that, then beautiful things will happen. Wonderful things will happen as together we complement each other for the glory of God. As I say, there are literally hours now worth of teaching that could go into this, but I think the panel probably has enough to talk about there as well as the discussion groups afterwards. So um, receive that. I trust you know our love and affection and care and uh, receive that as the word of God that I believe it is. Let me pray. Father, thank you for being with us. May it be that these things will, will in no way discourage. Father, there are so many things that could have been said and almost need to be said about how to make sure that um, there are protections and safeguards and, and security for, for women and children who are in terrible situations. There are so many things that need to be said to reinforce freedoms and liberty. There's so many things that need to be said to correct husbands' misuse of authority. Father, so many things that need to be said, but no time to say that. But Father, would your Holy Spirit please allow these things, work in hearts in such a way that these things um, will not create fear or or resistance, but a, a sense of openness and then a faith-filled willingness to consider them deeply. And then to seek help and seek grace in applying them in ways that are faithful and true and honoring to you uh, for your glory. Lord, for the sake of your church, for your sake, the sake of our families, for the sake of our marriages, Lord, would you please do Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.